The reading this morning is taken from the letter to the Hebrews. That's on page 1006 in the Church Bibles. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, page 1006 in the Church Bibles. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offerings according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Well, please keep page 1006 open in front of you if you do have a church Bible. And let me add my welcome to Chalmers this morning. It's really good to see you. Um, If you're new to church things, or perhaps new to Hebrews, this book that we're going through all this year as a church family, if you're new to it, that reading might have sounded really strange. A bit like kind of overhearing a conversation from another culture and not quite knowing what's going on. Um, It's worth saying that this passage, it takes a bit of understanding... But the message it has is relevant to every culture, every person, every person in this room. And it's absolutely wonderful. It's been my prayer all week that I wouldn't lose people along the way so that we could all see by the end how wonderful it really is. So let me pray now for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, he told us earlier in Hebrews to desire to keep growing, to want solid food. And we pray, therefore, this morning that you would give us a hunger to understand this passage, and through that, a deeper love of the Lord Jesus and appreciation of why we need him. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are thinking specifically about the cross, the death of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross uh, around uh, 33 AD, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And of course, Christians believe the most extraordinary things about that event. In general, we believe big things about Jesus. We think it was right to rearrange the whole human calendar around his life and death and resurrection. We think they're the most important events in human history. But the cross specifically, we think, is hugely important. That's why you see crosses on church buildings or in Christian church logos. Why is the cross so important? Well, here's a summary. At the cross, the perfect Jesus died in the place of imperfect human beings. 
That is, he paid the penalty that we deserve. He, the perfectly pure, holy Jesus Christ, took all the pollution from our sinful, unclean lives upon himself so we could be washed clean, utterly clean, before God. It's right at the heart of what Christians believe. He paid the price, so I don't have to. Because he died, I can be set free. But of course, for many people, that idea is very hard to accept. Sometimes it's just hard to understand, but actually more often, when you understand it, it's hard to believe. I think that struggle to accept the cross comes from two opposite directions. See, for many in the West today, the cross solution just sounds too difficult, too kind of over the top, too gruesome and higher price to pay. The attitude of, I mean, who, who needs someone to die for me? Who says that? Who says I'm unclean? Who says that a, a sacrifice would be needed to make me right with God? Who says I deserve death for what I've done, for how I've treated God and others? I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but steady on. I mean, isn't this kind of saviour dying on the rescue mission? Isn't it a bit OTT? Isn't it? Can't we just say kind of we're sorry and everything's fine? When we get to the, the gates of heaven or, or the judgment seat of God when we die, can't we just explain, look, I tried my best most of the time, some of the time, or I didn't hurt anyone most of the time. Well, at least I didn't hurt anyone as badly as other people hurt people. Isn't that enough before a holy God? That's one direction that, that um, disbelief about the cross comes from. Kind of, surely you can't believe, you can't expect me to believe that it required a price, an offering like that, something so costly. Surely it's not that high. That's one direction. The other direction the opposite direction, hears the message of the cross and says, there's no way that could be enough. Not for me. Just one death, one time, from one man, 2,000 years ago, there's no way that could make me clean. Not today, not given what I've done, not given who I am. I think most people in Western cultures at the moment are are in the kind of first category. Surely not. Surely it doesn't take a kind of sin offering. Uh, but actually, across, across the globe and across human history, I think a lot of cultures have been in the second category. The sense that something serious needs to be done to ward off the judgment of God or gods or spiritual forces or something. Kind of, we're aware our behavior as human beings isn't actually great, so surely something has to be paid, money or crops or animals need to be sacrificed or some kind of harsh asceticism needs to happen or penance needs to be endured on our bodies. Or minimally, we need to wash ritually or we need to have a special place that's been purified to meet with the divine or, or we need to go to mass or confession or something. A general sense that a lot needs to be done to get us pure enough to, to approach God and needs to keep being done. For those who come from that direction, the idea that just one single event, one man dying on one cross one time, the idea that that could provide permanent, complete forgiveness and cleansing for all time, well, it's almost too simple, almost too good to be true, too astounding to believe. 
I wonder what direction you come from. Times when you struggle to appreciate the cross. For these Jewish Christians, um, they'd, they'd grown up in the kind of culture where there was a lot going on to try and deal with sin. God had commanded his people Israel to operate a special place, the tabernacle tent and the, then later the temple, with special holy people, the priests, doing special rituals, sacrifices, purification, rites. Every year they had this day of atonement, this annual spiritual deep clean to deal with sin. Like many people around the globe, it was very clear you have to do an awful lot to get anywhere near a holy God, to allow imperfect, unholy, unclean human beings to approach the the white-hot holiness of the living God. Which meant when Jesus came along as Israel's promised Messiah, the Saviour King, and died on the cross as a one-off payment, a one-off purification, that meant there was no more any need for sacrifice or any other ritual, The, the fact that he had done in one day what hundreds of years and thousands of animal carcasses had not done, I'm sure it was pretty hard to believe. That an invisible priest in an invisible heaven is more effective than all the tangible, physical, repeated sacrifices that we would reassure ourselves with down here on planet Earth. And yet that is precisely what the Bible says. Just look at Hebrews 10, verse 10. This is where we're going to end up. Um, And I hope by the time we finish, this verse will mean more and more to us. But Hebrews 10, verse 10 captures what Jesus has achieved at the cross very well. 10, verse 10. By God's will, we have been sanctified, that is, made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Hebrews is saying that Jesus' death at the cross is so effective... It makes us completely holy before God. Nothing more is needed. Now, as we work through, we're going to find out why that is. But the implications of this are absolutely radical. The spiritual purification industry globally is a massive economy. So much time, effort, money goes in to trying to get clean enough for God, to try and be spiritually purified. The message of this chapter is that none of it is enough, and Jesus can do it all at his death on the cross. Just before we dive in and work through the details, let me come back to that question, what is it for you? If you're tempted to to sometimes underestimate or undervalue or, or just not fully trust in the cross, which direction does that come from? I think for some of us, we will have absorbed our culture's values that God's holiness is actually much lower than the Bible says it is, and human goodness is actually much higher than the Bible says it is. We've kind of, we've watered down the the ferocity of God's indignation at sin, um, and we've kind of talked up our own game. If we think of ourselves as not that bad, at least compared to others, Well, we might be surprised that God would require a death for us to be forgiven. We might have that feeling of, isn't it, a bit more OTT, uh, a bit OTT. Or another symptom that that's going on in our hearts can be we just just lack thankfulness in the Christian life or wonder in the Christian life. 
Sometimes as Christians, our, our, our kind of joy or thankfulness can really go up and down with our circumstances, whether we feel like God has given us the gift we want in life. Sometimes that happens because we have not grasped the wonder of the gift he gave us at the cross. The huge, extraordinary, massive love he's already proven to us as his son died on the cross to make us pure. Perhaps we come from that direction. Did I really need the cross? Is it really that necessary? But I think lots of Christians fall into the other side, the other category, that we, we struggle to believe the cross is enough. You can diagnose that because uh, we'll try and top it up with something. It could be frantic serving to try and gain some credit to our account. It could be harsh discipline to show that we're taking sin seriously. It could just be that when we have sinned, we kind of feel we have to mope around for a couple of days emotionally before we'd be able to pray to God and approach him again. Or we might be tempted to turn to more ritualistic forms of church where we can all together do something to kind of make things right or more experientialist kinds of spiritualities where, where by chasing the emotional high, we reassure ourselves things are okay with God. I guess the way to test is when we sin again or, or when we're reminded of shame at, at something from the past or a general sense of feeling unclean or unworthy, where do we turn? To the cross or to the top up? Okay, time to get into our passage. I've spent a bit of time on that because, um, as I said, some, some of this will require us to think hard and to, to kind of follow along with his argument from the Old Testament. And so I want us to be motivated as we go into it. That was the point of those 10 minutes. Um, that actually all of us could grow in appreciating how sufficient the cross actually is and that nothing else um, could do the business when it comes to getting right with God. So let's dive into our three points, and we'll spend more time on the first and second. Um, but three points. The first one is this, verses 1 to 4. And there is an outline if you, on the back of the sheet. Um, uh, verses 1 to 4. Old Testament rituals made it very clear it is impossible for animal sacrifices to fully cleanse sin. Old Testament rituals made it very clear it's impossible for animal sacrifices to fully cleanse sins. Right, what Old Testament rituals are we thinking about? Or end of verse 1, he speaks about these same sacrifices continually offered every year. And like I said, every year they had the Day of Atonement where they offered animal sacrifices. You can read about that in Leviticus 16, be well worth reading about, this kind of annual deep clean of the sin of the people and the deep clean of, of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where God dwelt in the midst of his people. It was like the accumulated pollution of the uh, sin of the people needed washing away if God was going to remain in their camp. But here's the thing. Even though bull after bull after bull and goat after goat after goat was dying as part of those sacrifices, even though the blood was being put in all the places that God said to put it on, carefully prescribed process, even with all of that costly, careful, choreographed, serious cleansing rites. It was clear that it didn't go deep enough. How was it clear? Well, look at the end of verse 1. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The deep clean didn't go deep enough. It didn't make people perfect. How do we know that they weren't being made perfect 
Um, well, one reason was, which we saw a couple of weeks ago in the evenings when we've been going through chapter 9 in the evenings, one reason was there was this safety curtain in the tabernacle between God's actual presence and the people, and that safety curtain stayed shut. Even actually on the Day of Atonement, the, the, the high priest went in briefly to spread some blood around, but immediately retreated. So that even when you'd just done the sacrifices, all the right sacrifices, still the doorway was closed. The uh, airlock, the priestly holy airlock, or the safety barrier was still there. It just simply wasn't safe for an imperfect Israelite, even an imperfect Israelite priest, even who'd had a bath and killed the right animal and put the blood in the right place, it just wasn't safe to be close to the perfect, holy presence of God. That was one way we saw it a couple of weeks ago, that the door was not open. But actually, the issue here is uh, the conscience of the people. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, these sacrifices, would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Jesus can wash our guilty consciences clear, but these sacrifices never could. And actually, their very repetition was a reminder that this wasn't completely dealt with, was not completely paid. It was like you, you killed the animal and you think, well, we're going to be back doing this again next year. In fact, sooner than that, because they were daily offerings as well. I think that is the experience in many religions around the world engaging in various cleansing rituals, penance rituals, confession rituals, offering rituals, and knowing we'll be back here again. I'll be doing this again next week or next month. That feeling of the price is never fully paid, the conscience is never fully cleansed. Why is it? Why couldn't they deal with that? Why couldn't they make the people perfect? Well, verse 4 just tells us straight up, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just pause and take that in for a moment. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is actually a, a really sobering moment, I think, in Hebrews. If you look back to chapter 9, verse 22, just the column to the left, chapter 9, verse 22, we were told that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, um, all sorts of things got purified by blood because, 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Uh, it was very clear that if a holy God was going to live with unholy people, be in relationship, or well, there must be blood, there must be the sacrifice of death to cover. If you're wondering why that is, you can either listen to last uh, Sunday evening's talk or listen on later, I'll explain. Uh, but it's very clear, blood was necessary for forgiveness, no forgiveness without blood. That was pretty sobering, especially to the people who think, well, it's not that big a deal, is it, God forgiving us? Actually, once you add 10 verse 4, think about this. Blood is required. It's impossible to be forgiven without blood. And then 10 verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hang on, hang on now. <laughs> You're saying blood's required and animal blood's not enough wonder if we've ever paused to reflect on how difficult forgiveness actually is for a God of absolute justice. In fact, seemingly, it's not just difficult, it's impossible. Just think about it. 
God's the absolute truth teller. He promised all the way back in Genesis, he promised that if humanity rebelled against them, they must surely die against him. He's the truth teller. He can't break that word. He'd said to Israel, he's the absolute lawgiver to Israel, he'd said to Israel that if they break the covenant, the punishment was death. And he's not suddenly going to twist the law. He's the just judge. And actually just his own nature. He is absolutely pure. He's, he's white-hot holiness. Utter perfection and goodness cannot endure evil. Just saying, I forgive you, let's forget about it. On the surface, it's ethically, judicially, morally impossible for God. Blood's required. Animal blood's not enough. Which just leaves us paying for it ourselves. Now at this point, someone might well object and say, hang on, hang on, steady on. I mean, what is all this talk of blood about? You can't seriously suggest that God is some kind of vengeful, bloodthirsty deity who can't find it in himself to forgive. Surely that's not the Jesus we saw who was kind and gracious and did offer forgiveness to people. Surely all this talk of blood is just primitive people who don't really understand how forgiveness works psychologically. It's true that Jesus was a man of extraordinary grace and forgiveness. He was gentle with sinners. He approached the outcast. He reached out to the marginalized. He offered forgiveness to everyone. The reason he did that was not because he didn't believe that blood was required for forgiveness, but because he had come to pay that blood, to offer his own life at the cross. It's not that the Old Testament has loads of blood for forgiveness and the New Testament has none. So the New Testament has better blood, a better death than animals. Well, if you're still thinking, I don't understand why blood is necessary, we will get to more of that in point two. But just before we leave point one, and I hope you're still with me, there's one detail in there which I don't want to skip over. uh, Verse one is this language of shadow and reality. See, all these Old Testament rituals and sacrifices, they're described by Hebrews as shadow. What is a shadow? I was going to bring a torch, but then I decided there's too many lights on, we wouldn't even see it anyway. Imagine this is, this is the reality, and it casts a shadow backwards. And I've done a little picture on you for the handout to try and catch this. Now, what is a shadow? Well, it has the same shape as the reality. Here's the reality, and it kind of has a shadow, it projects. It's a kind of echo of that reality, it's connected to it. It has the same rough outline, and it points to it, but it has no substance of itself apart from the reality. Does that make sense? Shadow. You can practice outside with the sunshine if you want to. That's a brilliant description of the animal sacrifices and the whole tabernacle. It points forward to the real solution. It has the same shape as the real solution, but in itself it has no real power. So these sacrifices gave us the shape of the solution. They said that substitution is needed. In fact, a substitutionary death is needed, that's the point about the blood, for us to be forgiven and cleansed. So the priest, on that day of atonement, he put his hands on the head of one of the goats and confessed the sins of the people, as in our sins on his head, on the the, the animal's head. It's clearly a substitution. It was also clear, though, 
that that's not a fair swap. That goat is going to represent our sin. But it was always pointing to a bigger reality, always pointing to the cross of Jesus, where his substitution, dying in our place, would bring us full forgiveness. That was the shadow, he's the reality. I think that has some big implications for us. Um, Firstly, if you are coming from the, I really don't think blood is necessary, this whole talk of substitution is a bit over the top. I think it should sober you that God spent hundreds of years preparing our minds and hearts for the need of a cross. That is to say, this visual aid in Israel was put there deliberately to teach you do need substitution, it needs to be blood substitution, a death. Sometimes off the back of that, people ask the question, well, isn't that a bit harsh on Israel? Like, they were a visual aid, but they didn't have the real thing. Remember, a shadow always points to the real thing. It's kind of echo of it. And so as they trusted God's promise that if you, if you trust the provision I give to you, I will forgive you, they were really pointing forwards and trusting forwards for the cross. Jesus' death works backwards as well as forwards. The third implication of this shadow language, I want to speak for a moment to the person who does find it hard to believe the cross would ever be enough, who feels it needs to be topped up. That person could come from another religion or could be someone trying the Christian equivalents. We need to hear this message loud and clear. Even the most costly of sacrifices, animals were big business in an agricultural society. It's like, it's like giving you your, your kind of main tractor. Costly. Serious. It's a blood sacrifice. We're talking death here, not just some grain or some pouring out some um, wine or something. Costly, serious, and choreographed the way God said, and it did not work. How then could we think that giving up chocolate for Lent, or trying to serve our way out of trouble with God, or promising that we'll turn over a new leaf next time and somehow that counts backwards to make this time okay, or, or giving money, or anything else that we could do, could help when it comes to getting clean before God. Blood was needed, better blood than animals was needed. That's point one. And just as we feel like, well, humanity's in a predicament we cannot escape from, just at that moment, Jesus steps in. This is verse five um, in our second point. Let me just read verse five. This is an absolutely amazing moment of human history being described here. Consequently, as in because that did not work. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is an amazing moment. It's absolutely mind-blowing what this is describing. Um, it is going to take a bit of concentration, so do whatever you need to do, like take a deep breath or wiggle your toes or whatever to, to just um, be able to zone in for a few minutes. Um, the big point of verses 5 to 7 is actually relatively clear, I think. God wants human obedience, not animal sacrifices. God requires human obedience, not just animal sacrifice. It's there, isn't it, in verse 40. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure 
Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will. There's the obedience. So far, so simple. What God really wants, what God really cares about, is human beings listening to him and obeying him, not just whatever gifts or offerings they bring. Now, I've put a box there. We're not going to go through every reference, don't worry. I've put a box there where you can read through, look up those references. Um, one of them is wrong. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, 8 to 14 should be 1 Samuel 13, 8 to 14. So that will confuse you if, you if you go there. But you can look through them later. But basically, there's this massive thread through the first part of the Bible that shows how much God cares about obedience in humanity and in his people. So right at the beginning, he told Adam and Eve, you need to obey my voice or you'll surely die. Right at the start of Israel's um, uh, covenant, before they go into the promised land, he says in the law, you have to obey my voice if you want to enjoy life. Obedience is what he really wants. Now, as the story goes on, God's people don't obey him, not fully. I think the thing we tell ourselves in our heads, even as Christians, is, well, yeah, they weren't perfect, but at least the animal sacrifices kind of made up for it, kind of balanced the books. That is not what the Old Testament says. Over and over again, the Old Testament points out that the animal sacrifices are not balancing the books. That's what I've put all those prophets' references to. I won't read them all, but I will read a few just to give you a sense. This is Isaiah chapter 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Then later in the chapter, wash yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Do you hear the point? Actually, I'm not happy just having loads of sacrifices when you're completely ignoring what I say over here. Jeremiah, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to you. The reason I'm bringing disaster on this people is because they've not paid attention to my words. As for my law, they've rejected it. Or Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They have dealt faithlessly with me. That's the prophets, and you could read many more examples like that. And not just the prophets, the kings as well. The whole thread of the kings uh, says that the king needs to be obedient. In fact, the very first king failed on the obedience test, even as he was offering a sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, the prophet says this to King Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice to listen than the fat of rams. Do you hear the point? Over and over again, we're told that God cares about obedience. These animal sacrifices can, over, can only paper over the cracks in human disobedience for so long. All of which brings us to Psalm 40, which is being quoted here in Hebrews 10. Um, we've, we've just seen that he could have picked loads of places in the Bible to go for a passage saying... Animal sacrifices is not where it's at, doesn't do the business, but obedience is what really matters. He could have picked loads of passages, but he picks this one because of who is speaking. Have a look. This is a, a psalm from the king, King David, originally. Um, this is God's king, and it's spoken in the first person. David's effectively saying, look, I know what matters to you, Lord, is not all these animal sacrifices. What you really require is a life 
lived in obedience to you. A love of the Lord with all heart, mind, soul, strength. An obedience of God's law from the heart. That's what David was praying. He was praying, look, I know you don't really want that. You want, you want obedience. So here I am. I'm going to live for you. That was what David prayed, except David's life was pockmarked with moments of huge disobedience and sin. Terrible things. These words never fitted fully in his mouth. He was a shadow of the reality. At which point, in steps Jesus, who can actually take these words on his lips with no qualifications or exceptions or caveats in the small print. This is the bit to concentrate for. In 10 verse 5, the moment of history where Jesus, notice, Christ came into the world and said... The moment this is talking about is when the eternal Son of God says to God the Father, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Behold, I've come to do your will. As in this is the moment when Jesus stepped below the angels, took on a human body, so that he could live the fully obedient life that we've completely failed to. He stepped into the shoes of God's people, into the shoes of the king. God the Son saying to God the Father, look, I know, I know you don't really want these animal sacrifices. I know they can't really pay the price. They could never cover the debt of disobedience. They could never take the penalty that's required of death. So here I am, stepping in, to the shoes of humanity, condescending to take on a body, to go below the angels, to do your will, O God. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And that's what verses 8 and 9 are unpacking. Uh, Hebrews explains the quotation. It, It says, look, this was a massive turning point in history when Jesus turned up and took this psalm onto his mouth. See, in the psalm, there are these kind of two offerings, aren't there? There's, there's one offering, which is the animal sacrifice kind of offering, burnt offerings, and that does not fully please God. Cannot, in fact. It's impossible, verse 4. Um, even when it's done right, verse 8, these are offered according to the law, but could not deal with our sin. That's one offering. And there's a second offering, the willing human being offering a life of obedience. And verse 9 says, Jesus does away with the first, the animal sacrifice system, to establish the second, his own life and death offered for us. I hope you're still with me. Feel free to ask questions afterwards if you're not. Uh, But we're through the deepest waters now. Let me just summarize. I'll summarize quickly with a kind of the Bible storyline so far. God made humans to obey him and to enjoy his world and enjoy relationship with him. We rejected God and so deserve to die. That story gets repeated with Israel. God gave Israel a wonderful land, said, you need to obey me. They rejected God, and the law said they deserve to die. Then came animal sacrifices, which were the shadow of the solution, the shape of the solution, but could not deal with the real problem, could not pay the death we deserved. And so then the Son of God said... Look, if nothing else can do it, here I am. I'll do it myself. 
and it hurt. We've seen that all the way through Hebrews. You could read back through Hebrews 2 or Hebrews 5. It was hard for Jesus to obey God, not least because his obedience of God's plan was meaning going all the way to the cross for us. And yet, because he did, we can now be completely clean. And this is what we'll close with, the, the final point, just very briefly. It's there in verse 10. Let me read verse 10 and then say the point. Verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. <laughs> My summary point is almost longer than the verse, but let me read it. This is why Jesus offering his perfectly obedient life as a substitute sacrifice has now completely cleansed us. I'm sorry it's long, but I think every word matters in that. Jesus offers his perfectly obedient life as a substitute sacrifice to completely cleanse us. Animal sacrifices could never actually step into our place. Never a true substitute, but now Jesus has. A perfect life, the life I should have led. A substitutionary death, the death I should have died. Which means, verse 10, we have been sanctified once for all. Sanctification is one of those words we often say, but they don't fully know what on earth it means. It means to make something holy or pure or set apart, consecrated for God. Many of us carry around an idea that we are being sanctified. We're gradually getting more and more um, godly or more and more Christ-like. And that's true, and we'll think about that next week. But notice the tense in verse 10 here. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In the New Testament, one of the common descriptions of Christians, when, when you get to the start of a letter and it addresses a church, it says, to the saints who are at Chalmers, to the saints who are in Edinburgh. How can we be called saints? Not just the special ones who do loads of stuff, but, but all Christians. Because, verse 10, we have been sanctified. His death, once for all, washes us clean and permanently clean. Not like an animal sacrifice where you have to come back and repeat it but a one-off death on the cross, doing what no one else and nothing else could do, making us entirely perfect, pure, holy in God's sight. Fit to approach him, fit to pray to him, fit to serve him, fit to know him directly. If you're not a Christian, and this is new, new news, I realise this might be a whirlwind. You might have questions. I'd love to chat to you about them. If we are Christians here, I'm going to ask the question, I just keep asking of Hebrews 8 to 10, do we realise how good we have it? If you're wondering how that fits with ongoing sin or when we mess up, well, we'll talk about it more next week. But the bottom line is we're clean. We have been sanctified. Not for a month or a year or till the next time. Permanently. Once for all. Such is the power of the Son of God living the life we should have and offering his death for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as with much in your word, there is rich and deep food to chew on here.
We do thank you so much for your Son. We thank you that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, did not leave us in the mess we made, but stepped in. Here I am, a body you've prepared for me. I've come to do your will. We thank you for the extraordinary grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus to step onto planet Earth as a human being, to live the life we should have, die the death we deserve, and so make us clean and right for all eternity with you. Help us to consider him, to appreciate him, and so be shaped for lives of serving you. In Jesus' name. Amen.